Well, good morning, church. How's everybody today? Good, good. Well, listen, I am so excited to be back in this room with you guys once again this morning to be able to share God's word together, to open up God's word that he might teach us something new today. And it's my honor to be in this space and be able to spend a little time with you today. We are finishing up our sermon series today uh, called Generosity. And we've been talking about all the different connections between God's generosity towards us and then in turn our generosity towards others. The real overarching concept behind this entire series is that when we become keenly aware of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, the way that God has so freely given to us, then we in turn, it becomes the most natural thing for us to do to find ourselves being generous and, and giving towards others as well. And so the gratitude that comes in our hearts then overflows to the world around us and to those that we come in contact with. And so I want to be clear this morning. I'm a pastor, but I'm also a father. And so as a father, I've been in my own home trying to teach these same kind of concepts, the concepts of generosity, the, the concepts of giving. And I'll be really honest, it's been you know, easy for my wife and I to do this together, but it's been the hardest thing to teach my two boys how to have a generous and giving spirit. Anybody else in the room, parents, grandparents? Um, so my sons are 11 and 8. It's not the optimal time to be learning these kinds of things, these kinds of skills and doing them. And so I see it in my own home. It's a difficult thing to kind of happen. They don't have necessarily a generosity in terms of their go-to attitudes. And so if you hear one of them asking the other one for something that they might have, it's just not going to happen. It doesn't matter if it's for one Skittle or one M&M. It's just not taking place between the two of them, and it's been a bit of a struggle. But a couple of years ago, I was surprised by my older son, Eli, because all of a sudden there was something that took place that looked a whole lot like generosity. He was in our living room, and he was eating some Doritos, and he had a bowl that was full of a large amount of Doritos. And my younger son, Owen, was asking him for some. And of course, the more he asked, the more Eli was like, no, you're not getting any of my Doritos. These are mine. I made the bowl. I'm eating them by myself. Get away from me. And Owen kept asking, and Eli kept refusing. And so I just kind of wrote it up as kind of normal Miller household antics when all of a sudden I looked over and I realized Eli had given some Doritos to Owen. And Owen was kicked back, relaxing, excited that he was sharing in, in the goods that Eli had had a second ago. And I thought to myself for a moment, a moment, look at Eli being so generous towards Owen. This never happens. I cannot believe he shared his Doritos with Owen. The more he asked, it was annoying, but he finally gave him some. He's being generous with it. And then I thought to myself, something's up. This can't be legit. And so I walked over to Eli and said, E, hey, listen, where did, you, where did Owen get those chips that he's eating right now? And Eli said, oh, those chips that he has right now? I'm like, yeah, the chips he has right now. And he said, oh, I give those ones to Owen because those fell on the floor earlier and I wasn't going to eat them myself anyway. How nice, son. So obviously we have some work to still be done at the Miller household and learning how to be generous towards other. What looked like generosity under a little more scrutiny actually was selfishness working its way out in what looked like, appeared to be a generous spirit. Owen was enjoying Eli's secondhand snacks, but it wasn't actually generous giving. It was instead something that was just benefiting himself because he was getting a bit of quiet time to himself because Owen was stopping asking for it. You see, the passage of Scripture we're going to look at today goes hand in hand with what took place in my house as well. Jesus is teaching in the temple courts, as he often would do, and a crowd of people has come around him. And in these first few short chapters, uh, these, these are the, the chapters just uh, in a few short chapters after this story, Jesus is about to be arrested. He's going to be crucified, and he's going to be killed. 
And as you may know or have experienced in your own life, at the end of someone's life is when they tend to share the things that are most important to them. So I would imagine this conversation that Jesus is having here in this temple court, just a few chapters before he'll be, he'll be killed, this must be something really important, close to his heart that he's sharing with his listeners. Here's what he says in Mark chapter 12, verse 38 through 40. Jesus says, as he taught, Jesus said, Watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces. In the most important seats, they have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. But they devour widows' homes and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. You see, what Jesus is recognizing as, he's, as this story is taking place in Mark chapter 12 is that not everything is as it seems. Just like with Eli and Owen, what I thought was generosity, in fact, was something completely different. Some things aren't always what they seem. And Jesus is pointing this out to his listeners. He's giving them a warning. And the warning is specifically targeted at the individuals in the community who should have been the model citizens. The people that should have been the examples that everyone was following. Jesus is saying, watch out for the teachers of the law. And the teachers of the law, I'd hate to say it, are people like me. (laughs) Pastors. These, These would have been people who had been highly acquainted with the Old Testament scriptures. They would have been the ones in the community who were helping set a tone on how to live a life that honored God and honored people. And yet, Jesus, as oftentimes with the New Testament, is skeptical of them. And the reason that he gives the exact same reason that Eli's generosity missed the mark is because things aren't always as they seem. Jesus says, be wary of these teachers of the law. They dress the part. They wear nice flowing robes. They're well thought of in public. They could sit with whomever they want, wherever they want, whenever they want. The prayers of these individuals would have wowed people when they heard them. And yet, underneath it all, they were devouring the homes of widows. Now, to be clear, other translations make that passage a little clearer for us. Some translations say they were shamelessly stealing widows out of their property. So these individuals who looked like people that would have generous spirits, who would have understood more than anyone the kind of generosity that God has for the world, are actually the ones who in the end were taking things from other people and living uh, the opposite of generous lives. They were inauthentic. They were phonies. They were shams. They were manipulative counterfeits. The ones who more than anyone should have understood the incredible generosity and love that has come toward God from God toward us that we could share with other people. You see, Jesus seems to always be after our hearts. That's what's taking place here in Mark chapter 12. He's pulling back the curtain. He's looking underneath what's going on here exactly. He's always more interested in our motive than he is actually our action. So what we're seeing here in Mark chapter 12 is Jesus' concern is not with what people do, but why they do it. What's the reasoning behind the whole thing? For the teachers of the law, Jesus is trying to point out they're doing it for the, the optics. They want people to see them and, and see that they appear to be generous rather than actually being generous indeed. There are several metals in existence today that look just like gold. Very, very similar to gold. Though they might be comparable in appearance though, we all know this, they have vastly different values. And, and centuries ago, people began to discover that there might be individuals who would try to scam other people by taking a worthless chunk of metal and trying to pass it off as something like a costly gold nugget. So what scientists did is they came up with a fail-proof way to determine whether something was gold or not. It was called the acid test. 
and it went something like this. If you had a chunk of metal that you thought might be gold, you would rub a black stone against it to make a mark on it. And what you would do then is you would take acid and you would pour it over that chunk of metal. Gold is called a noble metal, meaning that it's resistant to any kind of corrosive effects of acid. So if you poured the acid over the mark, if that mark were to be washed away by the acid, that metal was not real gold. But if it was unaffected, left unchanged, then the gold would be proven. It was the acid test. Generosity is really one of the tests that is used by Jesus to recognize the true hearts behind Christians, followers of God. It's a way of determining whether someone's motives match someone's intentions. Someone's actions match someone's motives. It was a way of testing this. And so the same thing is true for us today as well. It's the fruit of a person's life that will help us to know whether their actions are authentic or not. And this is what Jesus was pointing out. This is what he had a problem with. God is not interested in a church that appears to be generous with hearts who don't actually embody that reality. That's not what God is interested in. It's important for us to always ask the question, why am I doing what I'm doing? Am I looking for someone to notice so I get a pat on the back in some kind of way? Am I looking for someone to see me and consider me to be someone who is generous rather than truly being generous in my heart? Or why am I not doing something that I should be doing? And so with a deeper dive, we reveal our hearts into Jesus. That's the most important thing. One of the things that I love about serving at this church, I've been here almost 17 years. I know I don't look like um, I've been here 17 years, but I have. One of the things that I love about being at this church is we have a people in this church who are so generous, and they do it for the right reasons. They do it as a true motive from the heart, and it's evidenced in the way that they give. And it's evidenced by the way they live on the back end and the front end of that giving opportunity. Just a couple weeks ago, I found out about a single mom in our community who needed a washer and a dryer. Their washer would turn but would not drain the water, and so it was making it very difficult to keep clean clothes in the house for this single mom and for her children. So I have a small group of guys that I meet with, and we do a Bible study um, pretty much every other week. And we were at our, my house, and we were out in our barn uh, doing our study together, and I just happened to mention that I had found out about this single mom, and I was telling the story, and we were going to pray for her and pray for her needs that God would provide for her. And so sure enough, by the end of the time together, before we left, one of the guys in my group came up to me and said, hey, listen, I was, I was hearing you share earlier about this single mom, and I want you to know I have a washer and a dryer at my house, and I just wanted to go to them. Like, I want to bless them. I want it to be something that, that could kind of change the way they live day in and day out. But he said, under one condition, I don't want my name attached to it. I want this to be anonymous. I don't want anybody to know. So I didn't say any names this morning. <laughs> Simply told a story. But that's the kind of heart that Jesus is after. I'm willing to give these things, but I don't want anybody to know. Because it's a true heartfelt thing. I'm not looking for recognition. I'm not looking for a pat on the back. Two weeks ago, we announced for the first time the opportunity that men have on Tuesday to gather together for this men's event on, on, in the fall. We have some men in our church that are so passionate about seeing other men come to love God and have a vibrant relationship with him. And so after we made that announcement on a Sunday, I came into my office on a Monday, and there was a white envelope with my name written on the front of it. And I opened it up, and there was a very large check that was in that envelope, and it was for men's ministry to make sure any man who wants to come and join in this opportunity can come and join in this opportunity. This is why I love this church. This church is full of people who recognize that the generosity that God has given towards them is a generosity that can overflow out of their hearts and benefit people around them. 
But unfortunately for Jesus, he sees so many religious folks that are taking place in Mark chapter 12 who are not embodying this kind of life, who are giving for show only, who are living for show only rather than allowing it to be a true aspect of their hearts. Both of these generous gifts that I just talked about embody the kind of spirit that Jesus is talking about. It's a humble offering with no need of recognition, with the goal of blessing those around them. So the story continues on. Jesus gives this warning about the teachers of the law, and then immediately he positions himself within the temple where people's hearts are often revealed. Here's what it says then in Mark chapter 12, verse 41 through 44. Jesus then sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but then a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all that she had to live on. So as soon as this warning takes place, Jesus then goes and sets himself up in a place called the temple treasury. So he's just called out the religious leaders, the ones who should have been the model examples, the model citizens, who actually aren't giving out of a heart of gratitude or a heart of generosity. And he sets up in this location. Now, this is a court just outside to the east of the temple. It was also known as the court of women because this is as close as women could come to the holy of holies within the temple. This is as far as they could go. And in this court on each side, there were 13 wooden boxes with trumpet-shaped bronze funnels that would lead into those boxes. This was a place that people would then go and give give their alms and their tithes after they would come to the temple in this particular area. And Jesus sets up here. And the Bible says he watches as a group of rich people come together with large amounts of offering and they put them into the temple treasury. But then there's a single widow who comes and who gives her offering as well. The offering is much less than the other offerings. In fact, you might ask, how does Jesus know that it's just two copper coins? And one of the commentaries I was reading is that more than likely, because those trumpet kind of shaped uh, bronze funnels, you could hear one coin, two coin, dinging down through there as she gave, as she left the temple. Two mites, the Bible says, worth a fraction of a penny. And this widow gave all that she had. Now, these coins made this kind of noise. Jesus would have known this was all that she had given. And a few observations here. Everyone gives something in the story. So you would think that Jesus would say, praise for both of them. Everyone's giving. Everyone's being generous. Everyone's offering what they have. But according to Jesus, the widow gives much more than the rich persons who come along who give out of their wealth. Because according to Jesus, she gives out of her poverty. Remember, not Everything is as it seems. And so in this story, some gifts are actually less than what they seem. What looked like monetarily a very large gift from a lot of people, according to Jesus, was actually much less. How is this possible? How could Jesus make this claim to his disciples? And I think it's because of this. Jesus is speaking in terms of an economy that is not measured by dollars and cents. It's an economy that's measured by compassion and humility. Do you hear me? In our community, I think it's the same thing is true. An offering, a tithe, a generous gift above what you give to this church or another church or some kind of organization 
it's not measured in dollars and cents. It's not measured by how many zeros you have or that you write on the check. It's measured by the amount of compassion and humility that we give it with. So not everything is as it seems. These large gifts actually are much smaller according to Jesus. You see, the point of the story is, again, not about the amount of money that's given to the treasury. It's about the motive. It's about the reason behind the gift that is given. A few years ago, when we were still having Saturday night services in this room, remember that? Anybody in the room? We were having like four services on a weekend, all in this one space. And on Saturday night, my wife had come with um, our son, Eli, at the time. And at the time, Eli was like four years old. I'm going to be very clear, my son is wonderful, but generosity was not an early thing that he learned. So he was about four years old, maybe five. And Jenna was seated in the back right there with him, and the offering plates began to come by. And so my wife had reached into a purse and pulled out $3 bills, one bill, another bill, and another one, and gave it to him and said, hey, this is for the offering. But by the time she got him the money and he realized what was going on, the plates had passed. And so they were coming down the aisle. But Eli was very frustrated. He said, I, I, I want to go put the money in, the, in the, the offering plate. So against every bone in my wife's body, if you know Jenna Miller, I mean, to stand up in the middle of a service and do this is like the worst thing in the world. She stood up with Eli and followed the plates coming down the front to be taken to the very front. So she gets down right here with Eli, and uh, Jack Warren has the plates in his hand, and he reaches it out towards Eli as Eli's got his three little dollars, and he puts the plates towards Eli, and Eli takes all three of them, and he looks at them, one, two, three, and he takes two of them, he puts them in the plate. <laughs> so you know where this is going, right? So Jack just kind of puts the plate toward him a little more, and Eli goes, oh, this one, this one's for me, and turns and walks back. <laughs> and so Jenna followed him right back to the seat with his one little dollar bill that he kept for himself. And, and it's interesting because $3 is nothing. But it revealed something about Eli's heart. And oftentimes it reveals something about our hearts too. I mean, how, how does it happen for a five-year-old little boy, you get $3 bills within 30 seconds, one of those is for me. When the intention from the very beginning was for these to go into the offering plate. See, some things are not always what they seem. The gifts that are given by the rich people within the story are given out of a heart motivation that is not generosity. They're, they're in a crowd together. More than likely, they're praising one another for the amount of money they're putting into the treasury. And, and potentially, this is all about building kind of a, a reputation for who they are and what they can possibly do. Now, it's apparent within my family we've got a little bit of work to do after the chip incident and this one. We're still working. But with the intention for us to give to God in a way that honors him... We are so often, like Eli, ready to cling tightly to what we consider to be our own. I think what Jesus is looking at here is it's not based upon money, but instead it's based upon are we giving in such a way where we feel it, where we recognize the deficit. Perhaps the reason the widow gives more is because it was noticed for her much more than the ones who were giving out of their wealth as she was giving out of her poverty. Secondly, some gifts are more than what they seem. Some gifts are less than what they seem, but according to the story, some gifts are more than what they seem. The widow put in all that she had to live on, the Bible says. I believe this points to two very important aspects of this passage. The act of giving is not solely about the individuals who receive the gift that's being given, but it's also about a change that takes place in the hearts of the individuals who are giving the gift. And transformation, I would argue, only takes place through sacrifice. We have to feel it. We have to notice that something is gone for our hearts to change. 
I was in eighth grade, and my parents were working in an organization called YWAM. My parents were missionaries for about five or six years during kind of my middle school years. And uh, there was a point in time where we lived in Mexico for maybe a month, maybe a little bit more, while my parents were doing missions. And so my sister and I were, I was in middle school, she was in elementary school, and so we kind of followed my parents wherever they went. And so we found ourselves in kind of rural Mexico, near Monterey, Mexico. And one day we were doing some ministry out in a very small village outside of Monterey. And we were in this wooden church, very small, with dirt floor, with, on wooden pews, handmade wooden pews. And I remember sitting there as an eighth grade kid. Uh, my mom and other individuals were doing stuff within the service. My dad was too. And there was an individual up front, a pastor who was preaching. He was preaching in Spanish. I'm an eighth grader. I didn't know Spanish at that point in time at all. And so I was a little bit bored, kind of looking around and stuff. And all of a sudden I looked over, and when I did, there was a little Mexican boy sitting right across from me in another pew, about my age, maybe a little bit younger. And as soon as I looked at him, I felt the Spirit of God in my heart say to me, give your hat to him. Now, I want to clarify here. I had just received a hat for Christmas that was a Nike hat. And it was brown with a black bill, and it was awesome. And I loved it. So I was wearing my hat to church that day, and I looked over, and as soon as I did, I felt God's spirit speak to me and say, give your hat to him. To which my spirit responded, no way, Jose. I was not going to give it away. Because it was something that was, I loved this hat. It was something that was very dear to me. And so I, I looked back forward, and, and as soon as I did, I just felt the spirit again say, give your hat to this boy. And so I said to God, okay, God, here's the deal, as we often do. If by the end of this service, I'm still thinking about this, I will give my hat to him. If I am not, I'm keeping the hat for myself. So sure enough, the service went on quite a bit longer, and eventually it came to an end. Guess what I was thinking about? My hat. So I was like, okay. So I got up as an eighth grade kid. The service was over. I walked over to the little boy. I took my hat off, and I handed it to him, and he looked at it, and he ran off. No thank you, no smile, no nothing. And I started to weep. I walked back to my parents and I was just weeping and crying. But what was interesting is it had nothing to do, my tears had nothing to do with the fact that I felt like I had lost something. That I had given something away that was important to me. I was weeping because for the first time in my life as an eighth grade kid, I had done something that was generous. An offering that was probably no more than $25, but in kingdom value, it was much higher because of the motive that was in my heart. Because of the desire that I had and the humble attitude to want to give to someone else. It taught me something. That day changed the trajectory of my life in a lot of ways to live the kind of life that I live now. Now, for many, you could look at that story and be like, big deal, it was a hat, like no problem. But that's the point. It's not about the amount. For Jesus, it was never about the amount. The amount was, was completely irrelevant, whether it was large or whether it was small. It had to do with the offering of the individual. Did you feel it? Was there a sacrifice? Did it transform your heart in some kind of way? I want to be clear. This entire series has never been delivered with an intention to try and cause us to begrudgingly pry our fingers from the resources and finances that God has given to us. It's not the point at all. But instead, I believe that God doesn't want our money. He's not interested in that. What, what he wants is our hearts. He wants people who have a motive within our hearts that we are so, so thankful for the generous acts that he's given to us that we're willing to generously give and sacrificially offer to other people because it forms our character into the character of Christ so that we might one day long to give in such a way that it validates our relationship with him. 
so that our spirit will be refined by the fire of generosity and prove our hearts pure as gold. That's what God's after. The New Testament speaks to this true faith being not just uh, intention, but actual action in James as he writes in James chapter 2. And you know this passage probably well. But think about it in terms of generosity. James 2, 14 through 17 says this. What good is it, brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm, and be well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, it is not, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. You see, James's conviction here is that faith is not just simply an intellectual exercise. Faith is a holistic exercise. Our faith is made evident in our generosity. We can say we have faith in Jesus all day long, that he is the way, the truth, and the life, but it's proved by our life. It's proved by our generous compassion, our sacrificial giving, our ridiculous benevolence. That's where it's proven, in action. I have happened to have had a front row seat to an amazing story of generosity within our church because I share a small group with a couple named the Walkers. And recently, Joe Walker, uh, the wife in the, in the family, recently came and shared their powerful story with me in my office. I knew this is a story the church has to hear. So I asked if we could capture it, and she said yes. So I want to share with you a video about the Walkers and their experience of generosity. Check out this video. We decided during our Lent season that um, we were gonna try something a little bit different. Um, and so during that time, um, I think both of us have always gone into Lent trying to figure out like, can we give up something for 40 days? And usually it would be- Food. Food, coffee, candy, whatever it was. We're gonna do this for 40 days. And this time it was gonna be a little bit different um, for me specifically. I decided that I was going to give up sleep and wake up every morning at five o'clock to six o'clock and just spend time with the Lord. And during that time, I was just kind of asking the Lord, like, what is it that you have for me in this season? After a couple of days, I really felt like the Lord was leading us to adoption. And I didn't know what Steve thought about adoption at that time. When I approached him and I was like, hey, you know, what do you think about adoption? And his response was, Absolutely, I've always wanted to adopt. Say what? <laughs> Overall, we, we both, our hearts were in the right place. And I think burden-wise, the financial piece was what affected me the most. It was looking at that and saying like, well, why would we, we don't have debt. We've paid off our student loans. We're, we're doing what we're supposed to do. Um, and we're giving and we're saving and we're, we're doing everything. Why would we take on $40,000 of debt? That doesn't make sense. Surely that can't be what God wants us to do. I think, you know, domestically at the time, it was $25,000 to adopt, which sounded a little easier, I guess, but we knew that we didn't want to um, do that. And so when we got the final cost for $40,000, um, that was a little, uh, a little harder to swallow. There were so many God signs in this whole adoption journey for us that we were just like, you know what, God, like, 
as much as we want to say no and as as scary as it is, like we are going to trust you with this. I think just through prayer and signs, um, India just kind of started to pop up here and there. And yeah, yeah, and I think, you know, with India, it was really interesting because during that time when we had kind of nailed down, okay, I think this is where we're going to adopt from, I'm going to pray about it. Um, that was the first year that Mount Horeb started getting involved in doing mission in India. And so we just kind of took that as a sign, like, okay, hey, that maybe this is where it's going to be. So we got the green light. We were um, getting matched with a child. And it sounds terrible, but it's kind of like window shopping. They hand you a file or they email you a file and they say, hey, look through the medical, look through, you know, the picture of the child and let us know if this child works for you. Um, and, you know, it really, it really pulls at your heart because it's just like, how do I say no to someone? Um, but, and that's where you really have to, you have to take a, say a 30,000 foot view, kind of approach at it and say like, okay, can we handle this? We got uh, this file and we saw the picture and- And it was a little shocking. <laughs> it, it was shocking. I mean, imagine, you know, a child that seems a little bit malnourished in another country um, that's has limb difference. The limb difference that she has only affects her arms. And so she has a very short little uh, right arm and with two fingers. And then she has um, a little bit of a longer left arm with a bent wrist that has three fingers, but only two are functional. So her thumb does not work um, at all. And so it was just kind of a shock uh, for me. I think, I think for Joe, I think instantaneously, she was like, I'm her mom. Um, I remember telling Leah, you know, I was like, we, you know, we're gonna have a sister with special needs, right? And she said, yeah, yeah, I do. And so I said, well, what kind of special needs would you feel comfortable with? She goes, leans in, she's like, you know, if she doesn't have any arms or legs, I'd be okay with that. And I was just like, oh my gosh, like, that is crazy because they hadn't seen the picture of her yet. So they didn't know that she had limb difference. And so eventually when we did the reveal and we showed her the picture, she looked at me like with tears in her eyes and she said, Jesus answered my prayers. When we went to India, you know, they always tell us, well, they tell you in the agency, like the child is gonna bond with one or the other and it's usually gonna be the mom. And um, so we got to the orphanage and um, she did not like me at all, at all. But she loved Steve. And, and the yeah. point of, you know, me not really bonding with her picture up front in the beginning and then finally seeing her and her only wanting to deal with me. So, I mean, you know, uh, what, a five-hour car ride followed by an 18-hour plane ride. She was basically, like, glued to my body. <laughs> yes. Um, but, I mean, it was, honestly, it was bonding time for her and I that really, I think, was a game-changer from a standpoint of me just not feeling connected to her than being able to feel connected to her. Yeah. We were matched with her when she was six months old, and we were able to go bring her home when she turned two. So from six months to two, we were praying every night for our sister and she, they were involved in praying for her and they were involved in praying for her safety and her protection and um, the bond. And she really feels like she's been she's part, part of our family, part of family. Mm -hmm, forever. Yeah, I think, you know, when people pour into you, like it really makes you more receptive to give it back. To give what God is giving us and to do it up front. Um, he doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't want our money. He wants our heart to be in the right posture. He wants our heart to be in a in a giving posture. And that allows us to be able to see and receive the gifts that he truly has for us. And he has completely blessed us with the most 
precious child um, who is sassy and sweet and all the things, um, but we wouldn't change a thing. And we're so thankful for the people who have invested in her life um, because again, without their financial help, she wouldn't be here. So she isn't only ours, she's everybody who really poured into financially bringing her home. So we're super thankful. powerful story. And the best thing about it, as somebody who's in a small group with this couple and knows this family well, the last thing that they would want is for applause. It's not about that for them. It's about recognizing that God has so blessed them. There was 45 minutes of footage that we had to put into (laughs) six minutes uh, that you just saw. And one of the things they shared was they looked at their life and said, we have extra rooms in our home. We have more than enough than we need. Can we use this to benefit and bless someone else? It's not about the amount. It's about the motive. It's about the heart. Steve said it well. God's not after our money. He's after our hearts. But for whatever reason, it is the one place that reveals it faster than anything. Where we choose to invest. You see, this video is a testament to the power of generosity. Just one story among many in our church. It's a story of, of a life of a little Indian girl who was transformed by the generosity of one family and many friends who came around. But it's also the story of a family who was transformed by opening their hearts to another and doing something good because God had blessed them so well. I love the way that C.S. Lewis puts it when he says this. I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. You see, sacrifice is what transforms hearts. It's the reason that Jesus said those who gave so much, they, they did it with wrong motives. They didn't feel it. But the woman, the widow who gave out of the little bit that she had, she felt it. And her heart was revealed through it. This is the kind of life that I long to live. This is the kind of life that by the grace of God, my family is committed to live. And and I'll be honest with you, there's been a lot of uncomfortable times where I've looked at the amount of money that we tithe to this church, the amount of money that we give beyond this church to people to be generous, and I think to myself, that would be a sweet jet ski. (laughs) That'd be a lot of really nice, fancy dinners. But But it hurts to do it, and I like it that way. Because it reminds me that the more that I let go of my stuff, my stuff lets go of me the more that I realize that I can do without so that others can can benefit, it's the power of that pain that causes my heart to change. That's what generosity is about. You see, sacrifice means evaluating the generosity that I'm comfortable with and giving even more. That's sacrifice. Where am I comfortable? I'll go a little further than that. And what I've found is that most of the generous people that I know in my life are people who tend to run together. They rub off on one another. It must be about exposure or about proximity that causes our generous hearts to be in action. My daughter Murray is three. And I've noticed recently in our family that she has kind of developed a different vocabulary. She says things a little bit of a different kind of way. And so just the other day I was talking with her and she said, Daddy, I would like some milk. Can I have a bit? I was like, 
what? Daddy? Like, we live in South Carolina. We don't talk like, like, what are you doing? And then it would be something like, Daddy, uh, I would like to use your phone. Can I have, can I have a go? I'm like, what? Well, it turns out my daughter's favorite show right now is Peppa Pig. And if you know anything about Peppa Pig, it's a whole show full of English accents. And she's picked up on it. And she doesn't do it because she's trying to be funny. <laughs> she's just been around it long enough. It just comes out of her mouth. What I love about this story is you have all of these people, the, the group of rich folks who come and give generously to pat one another on the back to show what all they have. And then you have one window all by herself who comes to give two copper coins. Here's my heart behind it. I think that in order for us to really truly become generous people, we've got to do one of two things. You might have to pave the road yourself. Maybe you're not surrounded by anybody who's generous. You may have to say, we're going to be generous anyway. Or it might be about exposure and proximity. If you know people who are generous, spend more time with those people. Because generosity is caught more than it's taught. One of the reasons that my family lives the way that we do is because I've been a part of this church for 17 years and I've seen people live generous lives. I've seen what it does to them. And I see the impact that it makes in the world. I want to be a part of that. And I want to surround myself with people who are generous also. But if I have to go it alone, I'll go it alone. I think it's that important. And so this morning, I only have one question. It's very simply this. What do you have to offer? What do you have to offer? For some of us in the room, it might be a lot. Uh, for some of us in the room, it might be much less. But the question is motive. Why do I do what I do? And the question is also sacrifice. Do I feel it so that it can transform my character into the character of Christ? so that I can long to give in such a way where it makes me more and more and more like Jesus. Would you pray with me this morning? Let's pray together. God, I confess that as much as my heart wants to be generous, there are times in my life where I'd rather keep it for myself. Like Eli, I'd rather put the $2 and say, this one, this one's for me. But I pray, God, that you would teach me more and more because of the generosity of your son, Jesus, the way of generosity in my life and my family's life. Thank you for this church, God. The amount of good this church has done, the impact in this community and around the world. Thank you. Thank you for the story of the walkers who show us what it looks like to step out in faith and not see faith as a simple intellectual exercise, what I believe to be true, but it's shown in our action. That's the true test of generosity. So today, God, even as we pray, I ask that you might begin to awaken our hearts and stir our hearts toward good. Show us the things that you have generously given to us that we could offer to the world to be a blessing. Where we give you our lives. Would you do with our lives the kind of things that would make you honored? and bless those around us. It's in your name that we pray. And everyone together said, amen. Should we say amen or should we say ouch? <laughs>